From Satwa Knowledge Institute, this is Decoding Impact, the podcast where we apply systems thinking in conversation with extraordinary experts to understand what it truly takes to scale solutions in the social sector. Decoding Impact is hosted by Ratish Balakrishnan, a co-founder and managing partner at Satwa. Welcome to today's episode. In the last few years, digital health has emerged as a potential game changer for enabling accessible, affordable and quality health care for all. The pandemic has only emphasized the role of digital health as a key enabler to achieve universal health coverage. The government has also launched the Ayushman Bharat Digital Mission with an aim to develop the backbone necessary to support the integrated digital infrastructure of the country. In spite of the high potential of digital health, the urban-rural divide, the digital divide, the low economic social conditions and the low return on investment deprive the underserved populations of its benefits. In order to scale and implement digital health solutions in the underserved populations, it is important to address the question of who pays for the service and how. In this episode, we will explore the current landscape of digital health in India and specifically take a look at the financing landscape. We will also understand innovative ways of addressing the gaps both in innovation and financing of digital health solutions, along with understanding how each of the stakeholders can play a role in the scaling of these solutions. Joining us in today's conversation is Badri Pilapakam. He is a partner at Omidyar Network India, and among other sectors, healthcare is a key focus area for him. He's had the experience of being part of the growth journeys of leading companies like Hexa Health and 1MG. Badri, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ratish. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Uh, as you mentioned, I think digital health is a very core focus. It's close to heart for us at Omidyar Network India, and I'm happy we're having this chat. Badri, I'm glad you said that because, uh, you know, there are some areas where I feel like uh, we are in the middle of this whole idea whose time has come uh, type of a phase. And digital health does seem to be like a phase like that. Uh, as gruesome as the impact of COVID has been, I think one of the potential silver linings of that crisis was also the acknowledgement and the acceptance of digital health. And uh, I also saw, at least from my perspective, it did seem like it unlocked a lot of entrepreneurial energy on solving health problems to digital access and so on. You've had a longer term view on this uh, sector. You've seen it sort of from its nascency. I would love to hear from you. How do you see this time? And if you sort of take a five-year view of this space, how have things evolved? Yeah, no, I think uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think if you asked me in 2019, I, I would have said, the time for digital health is going to come. Um, it will it'll be a bit slow. It will take time, but it's it's uh, it's there for the taking because of simple problem of access right, to healthcare uh, and how the historical brick and uh, mortar model has only expanded healthcare access to a very small percentage of the population. Uh, I think 2022. I'm a lot more bullish uh, about the rate at which and. As you alluded to, I think there are different stakeholders that matter in the context of digital health and financing. And in that, I think the government's focus has always been there. Uh, but I think COVID was a bit of a wake-up call in terms of kinds of uh, uh, you know options that they should be seeking. How do they accelerate the financing and the disbursements? You know, I think that was a wake-up call from a government perspective. Uh, Equally important, I think the biggest shift we've seen is actually on the provider side. Um, providers, uh, which are the hospitals and clinics, and uh, historically, when you know uh, the healthcare solution that we're a part of, when they approach these providers for technology solutions, they'll be like, "Yeah, yeah, nice, interesting innovation, but we will engage, right? Like we'll do pilots, or at most, you know, we'll engage down the line." That has fundamentally shifted. That mindset is now I need to adopt. Um, uh, otherwise, you know, they saw what happened during COVID, uh, the supply of staff, suddenly a big issue, now workflows need to be automated. So 
a lot of solutions that are provider led that we are starting to see innovations around and equally i think lastly on the patient side as well right like i think people are now waking up to a uh, i need a basic cover which i did not have insurance cover i need you know screening technologies which i did not have i didn't know uh, i didn't know i had covid until its symptoms were very serious i had to go so i think that fundamental mind shift right and and i think the beauty of healthcare unlike many other sectors it doesn't discriminate based on income it impacts all of us uh, and in varying degrees so at 2022 we saw a rise of education ed tech from 2016 17 onwards we feel we are at that cusp as far as digital health is concerned definitely yeah, and thank you so uh, badri and i think as you were speaking it was interesting that the range of solutions you talked about you know there is the provider side solutions there is the patient side solutions there is the screening technologies and there is this entire preventive care space and wearables that is also becoming uh, you know important uh there is digital as software there is digital as hardware uh and can you just paint a picture of what is digital health actually contain and how do you sort of classify this entire market space in a in a structured way as well uh to understand where innovation is happening and what do we really call as digital health yeah i think the it's still varying degrees but the universally agreed definition now is that hardware and software solutions that Uh, technology solutions that are used in varying various applications of healthcare so and i can drill deeper on what that means uh, but with the fundamental uh, aim of in- increasing access um you know which would not be otherwise possible right so uh, i think that access point is how the world views digital health solutions um there i think we break the world into uh, uh three types and then five pillars and I, if i can just uh, drill deeper into those the three types would be those that are opd driven uh, so outpatient department where you know digital health lends itself which is your telehealth you know whether it's consultation whether it's pharmacy distribution uh, where it, it just automatically lends itself to uh, digital health solutions um, the second is uh, chronic care right um, and chronic care again globally if you see uh, it's that's the segment that has moved fastest towards adopting digital health fundamental reason being once you're diagnosed with a you know diabetes or a copd you don't need to uh, go to the doctor again and again right it's really about monitoring and so chronic lends itself to a fair bit and then you have your acute and critical care those will uh, take a longer path to digital health adoption and that's where the provider led models come so broadly we break it down into these three and as far as pillars are concerned i think uh, just building off of that for us uh, financing is an important pillar because we recognize in a uh, in a country like india uh, it's it's massively important how we solve and financing has two components it's because it's an out of pocket system you need a lending you know i think you guys have written about returnable grants and other in, uh, in, in in innovative instruments that can be used. so absolutely i think that is important but equally having a well defined insurance plan uh, and particularly for the impact segment or underserved segment that we care about uh, i think what the role of aishwan bharat is but also other forms of insurance right so that's one important pillar in addition to the three that i spoke about uh, and the other is uh, the provider digitization itself right like which is beyond just the patient access but there are things like data which we don't you know think today think about uh, the you know the privacy laws just came out a couple of days ago uh, hopefully these are the fine guidelines so i think uh, uh, hipaa for example in the us is a well defined right so how do we bring those standards which are both data led standards as well as medical standards i think that's the fifth pillar in addition to the three that i've talked about that we uh, so that includes things like ehrs emrs but also this data and the standards and protocols that are required from a medical perspective so those are the five pillars yeah and in the point of data that you brought up is so critical because i feel like it's and you know we're doing this in india multiple places uh, about how we look at the data itself as a public good you know which can then spur further innovations etc because a lot of the walled gardens happen because the data is not available so 
uh, I can, uh, you know, I know what you mean when you say provider adoption and provider adoption from the lens of data. Because once you're able to unlock that, then there is much more greater innovation, sort of starts a flywheel for more people to come in and so on as well, which I think is a very, very important component. Yeah, no, I think uh, just uh, on a lighter note, I remember my uh, family doctor uh, used to comment, uh, India is the, uh, so he used to say medicine is not a science. Um, because, But I practice so much in terms of number of people, just in terms of population, that I can compete with the best doctors in the world, right? Uh, I think that that's, that is the nuanced version of data, right? Like a, and if you were to now translate that into, say, there are digitized, um, you know, patient, population level data. I don't think people mix it to be patient level. No, it's actually population level data. And then provider has other elements to it, right? Like which could be the pharma companies. How do they create uh, either vaccines or uh, medicines that create solutions that are more Indian versions? Right? And there are a lot of, uh, you know, acute conditions that are more emerging market, more and more that we are seeing NCDs, uh, non-communicable diseases, a big incident. So how do we use that? So I think that's what uh, why data becomes important in the medical world. I agree. And I think especially if you move the boundary beyond uh, data to healthcare to look at public health, then this data becomes even more important to say, okay, how where do we look at vaccinations? Where do we look at febrile infections, quality of water, nutrition, all of that? And then preventively look at all of these things. And I think it's a large topic. If there is time, I want to come back to it today. I do want to drill a lot deeper on the financing part, uh, Padri. But before I go there, I think the three pillars from a patient-centric lens was very useful to say, hey, from outpatient to, you know, coming into chronic conditions to acute conditions. And I think a lot of us uh, with parents in homes are now getting used to digital apps for diabetes uh, as if, you know, it has been there all around. Uh, Two questions for you. One is, uh, in which of these segments do you see the highest movement, uh, you know, both in terms of adoption and accelerated adoption, you know, where the speed is actually fairly quick. And the other point you made, which is earlier, which I, as you rightly said, the promise of digital is the promise of access, you know, that this is actually available for everyone. Uh, across these three segments is the access component equally addressed as well, you know. Uh, do, you, um, do you see this promise of access actually playing out across all of these three first three pillars that you highlighted? Yeah, uh, great questions. I think on the chronic side, let me address that first. Uh, I think what we're seeing the most uh, plenty of innovative solutions uh, in, is in the diabetes world in particular uh, and uh, PCOD, which is under the women's health. Um, so uh, these two, uh, you know, uh, whether the companies like Wealthy, Beto, Zyla, many, many solutions that we're seeing that specifically address uh, chronic conditions of diabetes. And to the point that, uh, you know, I think reversal is a stretch, but significantly reducing HbA1c, uh, you know, we've seen plenty of evidence now that with just the right program, adherence to the right programs, you can uh, reverse and to the less than six, which is the threshold. Uh, so I think uh, diabetes, uh, largest market that we are seeing today, women's health, like I said, probably gaining traction. Uh, what we would like to see, and this ties into your access question as well, um, is this is still a problem of the people who can afford, right? Like a lot of this is still uh, out of pocket. Um, and therefore, this is, you know, higher to middle income population. What we are seeing, uh, and access has two components, the solutions itself, and then the financing. So let me talk about the financing piece for the first time. And I, I don't know how long this lasts, but uh, I really uh, hope that uh, this is the way India moves. But essentially, if you look at the financing uh, insurance segment, there were historically, there were two segments that were very well covered. One is the ESIC segment in terms of just purely coverage. You may not, you know, healthcare facilities, number of beds, etc. we can argue, but it's still a very good coverage that has existed, surplus funds that have always been around. So, so that's the less than 21,000 rupee household income population. Uh, and so that is well covered, actually. And then you have your top, you know, call it 4%, 5%, depending on which insurer, they'll say 10%. But there is that upper income, which has always been well covered through. Uh, I won't say fully covered, but well covered as far as insurance is concerned. So there is a missing middle layer, and which is starting from your 21,000 and above. And usually that cuts off at a 60, 70,000 rupee kind of household income. For the first time, group insurance 
uh, we saw many of them actually cover this population because the corporate said, hey, I need to provide this for my employees as a benefit, particularly during the COVID times. I think that was a cutting edge uh, uh, change that we are seeing. Uh, I hope that continues, like I said. But in order for access to improve, I, we believe that that middle income segment financing and insurance becomes very important. Second, on the solution side, <clears throat> I think um, varying degrees. So we have investors in a company called MyVichar, which is targeted purely, you know, teleconsultations for the bottom of the pyramid population. Uh, and uh, very so telehealth solutions in general have very high adoption. Um, but the challenge in those tend to be so and access and quality, I would say, is decent. I, I don't think we need to improve the quality of primary care in this country. Um, I think it's really awareness, uh, challenge in access is awareness of what the problem is, right? And and there, I you know, I compare oftentimes with the average U.S. patient and the average, particularly Germany, which we have seen very high education quotient in terms of their own awareness, right? So I think one of the important pillars of access is to recognize that unless there is a physical touch point, we may not even be diagnosing the right one, which is one of the reasons the government is very skeptical about expanding uh, telehealth in a big way. Uh, and equally, I think, uh, I mentioned this earlier, you need devices at the uh, point of care devices, right? Diagnostics. And I think that diagnostics needs to, at home diagnostics. Today, you know, in the urban context, you and I are familiar, you know, we've probably had someone like an 1MG have come and take a test. Now that access doesn't exist. So unless you have those point of care devices and diagnostics that can identify that there is an event, healthcare is always an event driven. Uh, so that access, I think India can very actually become the home of uh, medtech. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I think the access point on diagnostics is also important point of care. Uh, so unless uh, you have ability to screen and diagnose in un deeply underserved areas. Uh, the follow-ups and, and so healthcare is extremely event-driven, right? So the follow-ups can happen only when we know that something has triggered and what is likely to be the situation. Right? We also have to understand physical access does not exist in many of these areas today. Uh, so I think uh, uh, we personally believe that India can become the home of medtech innovation. Um, I, you know, I mentioned the pillars earlier. We did have medtech, unfortunately, had to drop it for a variety of reasons. Uh, but there is a uh, Medical Device Regulations Act that's come in recent, not too long ago. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge there is still uh, adoption, financing, you know, those set of issues. If we solve for that, for example, you know, two companies that uh, we have funded a very, very early stage company called Neodocs, which can actually, uh, they're working on multiple disease conditions, very strip based, right? Like, so think of it like your COVID uh, uh, ART test or the RAT test, call it. Uh, very similar to that, can you extend that? And you, we are all familiar with pregnancy test kits. Now, can you extend that to UTI? Can you extend that to early uh, diagnosis of uh, CKD? You know, So those kinds of conditions. And so very interesting innovations that can come out. Uh, and that's one. And then we are also in a company called uh, Axio. The, uh, so they make... Um, in innovative wound care products, uh, you know, acute condition. So all the way to life-saving traumatic events. Uh, and these can become extremely affordable because of just the innovation that's gone in the cost of uh, making that as very cheap and radical innovation, right? So I think the innovations will come, but how to get them there, I think that's the fundamental challenge on access that we need to solve for. And a core part of that is the awareness and the financing issue that is No, thank you for uh, bringing that up. What you said earlier, right? 2016 was an edtech wave and uh, we've seen a financial inclusion wave as well. And when you look at a lot of how far we've gone ahead with financial inclusion, UPI and uh, and so on, compare that to healthcare, it does seem like healthcare, we haven't been able to make that big a wave. And largely it's because, as you said, it's we've been an India 1 product so far and India 2, 3 sort of doesn't come in. You brought up some of the product points and the distribution points. I want to come in later, but let's uh, jump into financing, uh, Badri. 
um i want to sort of share with you my thinking around how i look at the financing challenge and i look at it in four parts and i'd love to sort of run it by you to see if uh, which of this is real and where do you sort of need to double down on the one thing that you talked about is really the purchasing power of the people in the middle class itself or the rest of the population right in the next half billion and above where how through insurance and other mechanisms can we improve their purchasing power uh, to be able to access some of the healthcare services including uh, you know health tech services that that they could get access to that's number 1 i think the second one is for me the financing on the provider side you know which is how do we look at uh, b2b uh, hospitals clinics diagnostic labs etc adopting technology because the immediate roi is unclear and there is a certain cost to it um and given how uh, you know distributed the healthcare market is compared to let's say banks and others where there are just 12 banks in some sense that take care of everything the mom and pop shops in the b2b space is huge so is there a financing gap on the provider side that we have to look at as well and are there ways to address that the third is the financing gap on the product and the innovator side you know so there is this point where you have a product it works but you are not able to achieve economies of scale because you haven't had that large order yet so your product is still expensive which means that you can't sort of go to the markets that you want to there is a volumes issue and almost you know how do you kick start the flywheel in some sense so that they can get economies of scale and reduce pricing and is there a role of financing there as well and the last part of it is the public procurement piece and i whenever i think about access i do think unless this product reaches the public health system and uh, there is always a challenge but financing there again is a usual issue of how how do you look at uh, getting this to the government workers the last mile staff and those in the public health systems in general which is a different financing problem and we might not be able to address all four but one wanted to get your validation of are all of these real problems today and would love to sort of get your thoughts on which one should we start looking at first uh, you know as one of the more priority areas for us to focus on yeah i think uh, the uh, i really like the way you guys have laid that out uh, i think short answer all of them are problems uh, uh, and very very complex problems to deal with um uh, to me the part that is relatively um, you know i would say relatively easier to solve would be the last piece uh, because if and again public health has two components to it and uh we can debate over what is the right model but our view at least is the public health financing exists and that's your ayushman bharat right like so with ayushman bharat other schemes there are actually 14 different schemes even central government and then state many state governments have schemes so the financing aspect today is restricted to the patient right and if you look at global uh, payer systems uh they have moved towards saying we want technology solutions that will reduce the risk of incidents so they are moving more and more even there i would argue it has been slow but at least the shift is there so to the point on providers uh, which is the innovators let's call them the medical innovations uh being funded can we start to shift some of the uh, payer money towards solutions that will uh reduce at scale uh the risk of incidents right like and that's always the logic that works for insurance companies if my overall claims come down um then it makes sense for me to adopt this right so moving more towards preventive screening early screening solutions right like and those in other markets tend to be pair like in india we're not that right so uh so i think the challenge of uh, again innovation uh, medical innovations being funded today we think it's restricted to grants um and we can have different types of grants i think you guys have written somewhere about returnable grants and but let's call it philanthropic capital uh, and you know gates has always been a pioneer in this the bill melinda gates foundation so i think today it is still largely restricted to that can that expand to seed funding uh, more equity and more commercial i think that journey early but obviously we are optimistic that it will happen right it should happen uh, and therefore that i think that wave will happen but it will take its own sweet time on the um, patient side i think uh, for us like i mentioned earlier group insurance is the big uh, shift uh, 
we have to be aware of you know there are pros and cons of a fully insurance driven market obviously costs rising costs uh, coverage etc but uh, safe to say group insurance is a product that is tried tested um, more and more people so with the new labor code and the impetus on gig economy getting social security benefits i think those kinds of things natural extension uh, we should see that happening uh, on the uh, coverage and the patient side and uh, to uh, and, and on the hospital side or the smaller clinics etc uh, i don't think that is a it that happens over time so what we are already seeing from a, so there are you know three types of uh, financing that hospitals see right like which is your cashless and today the cashless coverage is uh, from a number of hospitals perspective uh, will be very low relative to most of the markets uh, but insurance companies recognize i think there is this common mistrust are these smaller mom and pop uh, uh, shops uh, reliable etc but uh, i think with we are seeing people who are building out that networks building trust Uh, and how to increase your cashless network second is the reimbursement financing uh, there is a equal you know amount of uh, importance that needs to be given and that we are seeing solutions like hexads or desert but uh, others like pristin uh, there's a company called digisparsh which is focused primarily on hospital financing and so they are solving that problem um, that's your reimbursement financing and the third is the out of pocket right Uh, out of pocket tends to be the patient financing so for as far as providers are concerned they care about one and two mm. and there uh, you know i if it if it links to adoption of digital health and financing that i don't think it's that expensive to begin with on the provider side right so i don't think we need to worry about that and there are other ways to do it so many of the solutions globally uh, are on a pay per use basis right like and whether it's basic or uh, uh you know vitals monitoring you can have uh, healthcare analytics in the uh, in the hospital bed and so different kinds of solutions but they have moved towards a paper patient model and so with the patient being covered then hopefully you can pass through so it's a question of reimbursement does that fall under a reimbursement line so that's the way we see the transition happening on the different segments i want to get to the next level of detail on some of these padri but uh, very very useful uh on the public um, uh, part you know that we talked about and for me this is as you rightly said the easiest thing to do but it's also for me the most critical to do because i was recently in a conversation with some very senior bureaucrats in the healthcare space and one area everybody acknowledged is the fiscal burden on the state uh to promise insurance to every patient when we don't fix our public health systems and our early diagnostic systems because the more downstream you go in covering for healthcare expenses the more expensive it's going to get at population scale so there is actually uh, the the business case for the government to actually invest in screening solutions diagnostic solutions and to be able to deploy them at population scale so that early warning systems are improved um, and we are addressing more preventive care i think the just the burden on the financial burden on supporting every patient and ensuring that they get covered for tertiary expenses comes down and over a period of time i think it just ensures that we are a, both a healthier country but an economically more secure uh, you know eco healthcare ecosystem because as much as anyone would want the budgets around healthcare are what they are i mean we can't go too far ahead on them so one i wanted to just acknowledge your point that there is a value in sort of establishing that sort of a model where early capital can go and uh, you know we can enable that and the other part of that is if the government can actually look at models of supporting innovations it also allows for uh, you know after a certain level of clinical validation is done and on ground validation is done it allows for certain level of volumes to happen uh, for innovators to then get to you know models of manufacturing which then reduces the cost which again has this flywheel effect i wanted to get your thoughts on are you seeing things like this either in india or globally where such partnerships are actually happening and you know this can actually be demonstrated for in some states in india as well yeah um first up i think you mentioned preventive and diagnostics i do want to highlight something there um you know i i mention this uh, quite often uh, preventive is the privilege of the privileged mm. uh, and what i mean by that is uh, when we speak to you know obviously we are, we are on the field we speak to consumers at uh, in the lower income population 
terms of what are your core problems <clears throat> right um healthcare comes up um i won't say in the top 3 but it does come up as an issue that we don't have access but when it comes to even if you when forget the financing aspect what are the solutions you want it invariably links to education jobs and other things right so and that to me is was an aha moment when it said aware if there is some awareness but there is absolutely no prioritization because it's it healthcare is hits you when it's hit you it, there's no journey to that right like and we have we have honestly experimented with preventive solutions financing to save up for the future medical events and none of those have worked and i don't think it works for the bop i did want to uh, lay that out there and it's a journey it will happen some day so our view on the any form of health solutions particularly for the bop has to be provider and payer led right uh, and there i think uh, like you know dwara for example uh, they're working on uh, a new hmo uh, which is health maintenance organization uh, for this population uh where you pay their subscriptions and you get primary care access so the whole theory there is if you solve for the primary care access the family doctor concept and then we will control the network that you need to go to you can manage the cost very efficiently through this and make cover uh, care more accessible right i think the model itself was quite interesting uh, and relevant uh the key there would be if providers wake up and say can we participate in this hmo and instead of having the family pay for this can we pay for that and we, that's where we need to do some pilots and see where to go as far as your question on let's call it public private partnerships uh, i interpreted that way i think we are seeing that i think we are uh, uh, i think it, where it is uh, acute like for example Uh, Andhra Pradesh has uh, done a fair number of projects on tuberculosis. Um, Gates obviously has done a lot of projects on malaria, willing to participate. And so, so our learning on the public-private partnership is, uh, if it is defined population level, uh, and where the results and health outcomes are tangibly visible within a short period of time, states are willing to participate. the other kind of part, uh, partnership uh, you mentioned on the public health systems we have seen uh, is where the public health system is providing the medical facilities but the financing is done through a private kind of an instrument i don't think that works um, our view is that uh, the public healthcare system just uh, not for any other reason it's just the volumes and uh, quality of care uh, still has a long way to go um so more to your question more interested in uh gov public financed private healthcare partnerships uh, and how do you make uh, so even like uh, so wilgro had done some projects uh, with state governments on innovation so point of care devices uh, the asha anganwadi system we've seen that as well as a channel for uh, delivering some of these screening i think maternal and child care uh we have seen that in uh, pregnancy uh, you know different kinds of solutions that have reached the base of pyramid population uh but ideally state sponsored will be the way to scale those two thoughts there one uh, just wanted to play back what you said about uh, education and livelihoods being like the way to look at it and this is aligned also to what i have seen that uh, everybody seems to look at the opportunity spectrum which is what is going to give me the life chances to sort of go up uh, the you know social ladder and education is of course now everyone's belief that this is really what is what is going to take me off uh, poverty and where i am the risk spectrum thinking is completely absent right like it, you sort of always uh, discount the fact that there are any risks that you're going to face which is why i think even in insurance i was recently talking to somebody who said uh, that even in flooded areas where almost every year there is a flood and almost every year the livestock is lost people still don't insure the livestock and the government uh, benefit that you get when you lose livestock is 15000 the cost of livestock is 75000 so in some sense it's it's a recurring risk and you know that every few years it's going to happen you still discount the risk that you might lose your livestock which is probably your primary source of livelihood 
and that risk discounting in some sense is what i'm hearing you say as well for health saying in a, I, I know people get sick but i'm not going to fall sick or it's not going to be that bad um on the um i, I think the the point you made about private finance publicly executed publicly financed uh, you know models i think this is a very useful classification i wanted to add one nuance there um, uh, adrian i don't know if um, you know this is a useful way to think about it a lot of um issues or not issues a lot of opportunity getting unlocked uh, in public models and publicly funded models stops at the place of procurement the procurement is just a massive challenge contracting gaps are a massive challenge etc um and now with the gem portal coming in and so on it, they're trying to find a way to make procurement more transparent and effective do you actually envision a model where um you know healthcare devices for point of care etc are available in a gem portal where public hospitals funded by the government can actually procure that procure them at volume because it's win 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 you know government uh, creates a transparent mechanism for purchasing uh, private players get access to healthcare markets in a way where they don't have to go to every state sign mous do the change management etc and hospitals have choices uh, even public hospitals have choices on where to buy am i oversimplifying a model like uh, this for public procurement which offers volume guarantees and allows for uh, publicly financed private innovation to happen yeah no not at all i think uh, spot on we're seeing early signs of that uh, gem is actually i would say reasonably well functioning portal uh, axio for example participates a bit, many of our biggest clients are uh, public hospitals and even the defense right like because they make uh, so and so so i think gem is uh, one way to go i would say uh, and what gem doesn't necessarily do is uh, reduce the cost uh, so i think that it's actually a good thing there's one learning from nhs uh, in the uk it's that everything is an l1 and the lowest cost and it's um, it just becomes uh, very difficult for innovators to provide and make any uh, any solutions uh, at scale right so i think uh, good uh, fortunately that's not the case and there are there are, and they're very receptive to the fact that there are certain ways of that uh, procurement uh, and we are seeing a fair number of distributors as well on the portal now participating medical device and all of that uh, I, i think you know when we think about public health system procuring and this, i think that part i don't know that it's fully happened at scale a lot of that is also to do with awareness right if it's products that they're using today and that's where gem becomes a more transparent way and there are in perverse incentives there in terms of why they may not want to go there as well but despite that i think um if we can also solve for awareness at the public health systems in terms of what is most relevant for you i think you alluded to this point around data uh what is a population health and what are your likely incidences and therefore are you equipped that journey mapping is simpler easier said than done but if we move towards the system you know i think system like canada singapore globally that we have seen is just phenomenal i think the readiness for uh, uh any kind of event that is likely to come and have a significant impact on the public health system is because every hospital in the network is already sharing what uh, information is uh, what patients are walking in with and they even have patterns around symptoms so so these symptoms equal to this likely condition so there is even starting from something as simple as a viral infection that is affecting people at scale to something that is uh, much larger like a pandemic right? so i think that we need that evolution um, we need that understanding of one of the things that don't exist and we see this in a lot in medical device companies uh the conversions at the public health system is very low so they automatically their sales pitches are navigated towards private hospitals and many of them uh, end up going global and how do we divert that towards public hospitals is a challenge i don't have an answer for it. Uh, i don't think that it's a it's a much bigger problem I want to come back to the point you made earlier around uh, the provider's ability to pay and the group insurance model and this is something I've been thinking about Badri is uh, that one of the challenges for us with insurance in general has been the labor market structure in India 
uh, only 8% of uh, you know india's workforce is in the organized workforce 92% is unorganized two chief uh, industries that we work with uh, agriculture and construction are like the most deeply informal sort of uh, uh, you know sectors i know when you talked about group insurance you also alluded to the gig workers you know which is an important play because that's the whole uh, in some sense in between between purely you know private or organized sector to uh, you know unorganized sector but how do you see this labor market structure challenge when you talk about group insurance uh, is that uh, are there ways to sort of overcome that to actually scale it outside of the esis effort that the government is actually taking so first of all i think awareness has gone up significantly so people may not be willing to spend out of pocket right away but at least health insurance is needed right i think that mind shift has led to some full based demand uh, and and you know we we even work with construction workers uh, and their accidental policies right like it's very very different like are they for the first time they're waking up and saying the trigger was covid but are they saying do i have accident coverage what happens right so i think that full based is something we are starting to see for sure across segments of so construction workers the delivery boys etc right so all of them asking for that on um what is the right financing instrument uh, i think it's it could be a combination uh, we have seen um, for example one of our companies experimented with a, a, a like 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 sorry before that i think zomato swiggies of the world during covid at least ensured that all their gig workers were covered had a reasonable actually decent coverage on the insurance side people have come up with very good interesting 1 lakh coverage products 5 lakh coverage products that are very very applicable to this segment of the population so i think that provision instrument is also there um i think the still the challenge will be who pays for it in the long run and at scale right and there i think that's at, and that's probably your question on the financing side uh our view at least at this point of time is that there is a copay model so similar to even your esi there is a contribution from the employee um today group insurance doesn't work that way right so is there a copay model uh, that can uh, there is an employee employer and uh, that is probably the way to go as far as that middle income coverage is concerned where you reduce the cost that they have to shell out but the coverage ends up being much more significant coverage has two parts i think the limit itself everybody talks about the limit equally important india is probably amongst the largest partially insured uh, population in the world which is to say that likely thing that happens to you is not covered by what you do so i think both problems need to be solved particularly for this thing again coming back to the labor market issue you know construction for example who knows who's actually sort of contracting this person because contracts are so informal agriculture has a similar issue but i've always wondered that uh, you know there is this bocw cess that is you know 6000 crores or more now it's probably much larger than few years ago that we are sitting on where while individual contracts are missing industry level contribution is already available and unspent you know uh, and similarly the agriculture ac- accounts for the greatest number of subsidies that the government has which is really farmer led uh, subsidies uh, let's even take construction for the moment Uh, is there a model of copay that can be structured where it sort of builds on the bocw cess for the industry contribution and then there is the worker contribution and as you rightly said uh, workers see value now you know covid has made risk a reality and if they know that okay for x amount of payment um, i get uh, y amount of copayment contribution from the cess or whatever is that actually a possibility to structure uh, payment models for um, uh you know for insurance for informal sectors like construction so that is one question uh second question just related to that um, uh, badri and i think also connects to the point of partial payment uh, bindu anant uh, you know the chairperson of dwara trust was also here as part of the podcast and one of the points that both of us discussed was also just the lack of innovation in the product of the insurance itself you know like the actual value proposition communication etc partly because insurance is so highly regulated but this whole contextual products that can be built either in credit or insurance is also uh, you know a, a challenge i don't know if you see it that way too so is there a, a last mile product innovation uh, that can happen which is which we've seen a lot happening in thailand and indonesia and so on as well so wanted to get your thoughts on that to say a 
how do we solve copay models for informal work sectors? Like construction is the BOCWSS type of a structure where it's not the provider that's paying, but it's the industry paying as a whole an option. And two, do you see a lack of innovation or do you already see innovation in the productization of insurance in some sense that makes it easier to sort of sell this to uh, workers as well? Yeah, no, no, I think both are very, very interesting dimensions. Uh, I think on the who pays, I think the BOCW says is a great idea, actually. We had uh, we had discussed that at some point. Uh, so BOC, uh, so if you look at the two or three pools of capital that remain massively uh, oversubscribed and uh, underspent, it's actually BOCW says and ESI. Um, so these two pools are highly relevant for the population that we're talking about. Uh, and are there so I absolutely diverting those funds? So, for example, ESI today is restricted to utilization in ESIC hospitals. Why can't you extend the funding to other hospitals that are willing to? Right? It's the the GIPSA equivalent of that. Right? Like, can you make it like a GIPSA program uh, where it actually even private hospitals can participate in the public insurance side? Right? Like, so that's the GIPSA program. Like, so all the uh, state insurance, state-led insurance. So extending that logic, here is a state finance or a public financer. Can I divert that to private care and have people participate? Right? So I think absolutely way to go. And more and more pools of capital for each of the industries. Is, that, that's, uh, I think, a very interesting innovation that we could see. On the product innovation, I think we're all... Uh, I, I agree with you. I don't think it exists today, but I it's a... like. For example, we investors in a company called Toffee. Their whole uh, idea has been to create micro insurance products, which are extremely relevant, right? Like, uh, so for a, at one point, malaria insurance in uh, uh, and dengue insurance in Delhi during peak season was massively oversubscribed, and we were seeing people from all segments of population, right? Uh, so, so the product level innovation. Once they know, uh, so the whole thesis is micro bit bite sized highly event-driven, and that kind of an approach framework, if you do. Uh, honestly, I don't think the regulatory piece is a big challenge. Um, it is the scale uh, and economics and can that work. Uh, I, I don't know, as you alluded to, it doesn't exist fully today, but we're seeing a fair bit of innovation on that side. There are other companies like Toffee, which are also doing that. Even the likes of, uh, if you talk to ACO, and for the first time they've entered health post-COVID, uh, and uh, they are thinking a lot around these kinds of innovations and for all uh, segments of population. So I think the innovation will do happen fast. I think once we create the public data to be able to understand the risks involved in some of this, it actually becomes easier to build the models for ensuring insurance into this, you know. Like I've recognized that uh, innovation in insurance also is hinged on the data that we have access to at population scale that tells us, hey, what is the risk of this incidence? What is the cost of this incidence? Where do we see this more of? Where can I do this? Because then that creates this microinsurance process very targeted to specific geographies, specific people and so on. Uh, so I, let me say, segue to the data part uh, because, you know, in the beginning as well, we framed it as financing is one issue, but the innovation is another issue. And maybe we start with the data piece and then come into the larger innovation question, uh, Badri. Um, for me, the uh, promise of the Aishman Bharat Digital Mission really is the promise of public rails that offer us data at scale onto which private innovation can plug into. You know, what you talked about in Canada to say, hey, every hospital has this, but the data is then available as a public data system. Um, and I know we are at a very early stage here and we are still... While there is uptick on the number of ABA IDs we are creating just to enroll populations, health records are a few, you know, maybe a few years away in terms of population scale. And then there is the rest of the information exchange that they want to create. Uh, since you've looked at the global landscape with data, you're looking at the ABDMPs with respect to the public rails understanding. How do you see the promise of this to be able to kick off some of the innovations that we're talking about, either in insurance or in products and devices and so on as well? Yeah, I think the current innovations seem to suggest to me that it will be more on the insurance side uh, where we will innovate faster. Uh, so uh, I often joke, India has very highly sophisticated actuaries uh, who don't need to do much because most of the products are cookie cutter. 
right? Uh, <laughs> and so for me, I've always found that baffling. Uh, I've met some very smart actuaries in the country, but they don't have enough data. And anyway, the regulators don't allow even something as simple as risk-based pricing, right? Which exists in other markets. So I think we have to think along those lines. Uh, like, for example, if you're over 65, doesn't mean you need to pay the 50% extra premium that you're paying if you're extremely fit and your likelihood of uh, any incidents, right? So we have to start thinking along those lines and move towards it. And that will fundamentally change the way people understand and accept insurance. I think there's a little bit of a chicken in it, right? Like, uh, why am I paying that when I don't need that much? So I think that mind shift has to change. Uh, data will also solve the problem of, like I mentioned earlier, what interventions are required um, you know, uh, are there uh, certain kinds of acute conditions for which we don't have uh, enough medicine availability in particular regions, which the public health system can become smarter at? So I think the interventions piece, it will become. But as far as the innovations, and uh, I, I think those will take more time. Uh, and a lot of that is to say, today, uh, we are creating innovations in silos. Uh, and not married necessarily to uh, what the situation or the need of the different TGs, at least that we are talking about. I don't think there is sufficient information that is relevant. Uh, so you could make it at a, you know, like a neonatal care, uh, in a respirator, you know, those kinds of solutions. Those are much easier. But when it comes to more specific problems, uh, uh, I don't think, honestly, India understands how the BOP, uh, what is the incidence of non-communicable diseases at the BOP? We don't have that data. Right? Uh, so so things like that, because that has never been diagnosed, right? Like you don't have a health checkup. So I think that shift will need to happen before we can see more innovations that are targeted. As we enter the last part of this conversation, uh, Badri, I'd love to specifically ask you in terms of, uh, you know, we've talked about where we are today. We've talked about a whole bunch of ideas around, you know, how public procurement can work. How can we look at informal workers, group insurance models, product innovation, etc. If you had to sort of look at the view of all the stakeholders involved and, you know, if you have recommendations from your side on what are some of the critical things that we should push for Uh, based on the conversation we've had and your thoughts, to actually accelerate adoption of digital health, what would they be, um, you know, across, let's say, governments, markets, civil society, philanthropy, and so on? Yeah, no, I think, uh, let me try and address this through first, what are the problems that exist today? uh, And then who plays what, we can try and figure that out. Uh, I think the fundamental problem, at the core, and this actually applies to all income segments, is low awareness. Um, and how do you solve for that? Uh, is it's a massive problem. Uh, we all talk about financial education. We talk about uh, you know general education, but why not health education? Right? Like, and much more importance to that. And uh, uh, so, I think that problem needs to be solved. Most likely, I would say uh, philanthropists. Uh, but equally, I think state has an, uh, I think they tried that with the Asha Anganwadi system, which was then quickly pivoted towards uh, delivery as opposed to creating that awareness. But I still believe that unless we solve for that, uh, you know, uh, we, for example, uh, you know, even in our own companies, 1MG, Mayuchar, the number of searches that we see, or even a hexa when it comes to surgeries, information on surgeries, we see a massive demand, right? And this again straddles all uh, segments. We Hexa is working on Telugu version, Hindi version, etc., because they're seeing that demand come from very, very different segments. Uh, and so, I think that awareness problem, who solves, um, is a bit, uh, is an important one. That has the other side of it, which is, are we providing the correct information? Right today, there is no uh while doctors have a liability certain uh, set of rules that they have to comply with there isn't a standard or a protocol in terms of medical information or diagnosis that is universal in the country and i find it baffling i think we need to solve for that um there are enough examples globally if you look at it in terms of how uh, like i would say on that piece at least us is 
probably the most evolved they spent a ton of money and time trying to figure this out in a right way uh, so lots of learnings that we can do from there uh the third is uh financing so on the financing piece at uh in the insurance piece india is an out of pocket uh system right i think we spoke about that before we need to first clearly define what system are we moving towards and there you can have you know uh, the the beverage model which is what the uk follows right like and where there is uh, the nhs there's only one nhs uh, and everything is revolves around it i wouldn't recommend that model but that's that's one model then you have the what's called the bismarck model which is what germany france etc which is the payer led right so employers and employees uh, will administer what they want the closest is actually a pf equivalent for healthcare where even the administration happens within the employer employee framework of the healthcare services right uh so I, i think with the group insurance can we move more and more towards that that could be a possible way and the third is the national health insurance which is the ayushman bharat but uh i don't think just have, having that layer alone solves for these other pieces of power so picking which model you we are going after out of pocket will not work for india scale i think uh, that's very clear so we need to identify what uh, paying system we're going to adopt and pros and cons of each which we can discuss and the last is the medical innovation itself right uh, and this is where i think the role of funders are most critical um, we have tried to be very candid to garner commercial capital at one point you know the likes of uh, axel and chirate they've done some very interesting in, in investments in um, uh, medical technologies uh, i think if you ask them uh, hand to heart they will say we are deprioritizing that uh, and that to me that's where that you, i think you spoke about that the digital health journey has not evolved uh, i think on the philanthropic side experience has been relatively better uh, so we use both checkbooks as you may, uh, as you know ratesh i think uh for us uh, we don't apply we apply it in education and other sectors we are as we speak figuring out where we want to do it within healthcare where the grants are best utilized uh our view of the world is that the grant side is relatively more evolved there is not much more we can do incrementally there could be instrument innovation i think uh, whether we do dibs uh, development bonds uh returnable grants and we could innovate on those kinds of structures to allow more people to participate where it's linked to health outcomes um i think that's something dwara also speaks a lot about i think so i think we can do something like that um but i think the more important problem to solve is on the true seed uh, innovations uh you know let a million medtech and digital health solutions bloom right i think that's a much harder problem i wish uh, uh we could get more funders uh, more interested in that space and for that again it's a chicken and egg if you solve the other pieces and as people see more uh, adoption i think health financing if you look at even though 2022 has been a very dull year if you look at which sector has as far as funding commercial vc etc is concerned health and financing has actually done very well uh, so a lot of you know the plums and uh kencos and all these health financing converting or loop health all these converting into uh delivery of primary care themselves so loop and uh clinic in particular are figuring out ways to uh, become care providers and uh insurance distributors i think that's a very interesting combination uh, which if done well can actually solve fundamental problem health so i think the long story short i think that's the to me the hardest part to solve how do we get more innovations funded such that uh, we get access i think the the next part would be the cost to serve question that often comes up the as far as the underserved population is concerned so we'll need a long, much longer patient capital approach as well to development this is uh, it's a wonderful summary uh, patrick and 
I, I just want to pick a couple of reflections I had as I heard you speak. One, of course, as you said, is that the amount of commercial capital that health tech needs versus what it gets is still a, a big challenge. And hence, this is value of death. Promising ideas, hitting a certain scale and then uh, not moving beyond, uh, except if they are like a Fitbit or a, a you know a software type of a solution. And I think that is uh, worrying because we need more, as you rightly highlighted at the beginning, point of care devices at the point where you know care is delivered for us to build the events, etc. So... I think the effort in some sense is to grow the market, then grow the innovation themselves, because then the capital starts to follow. And as you rightly highlighted, it's a chicken and egg problem. Unless you're improving the purchasing ability of the stakeholders to procure the health tech devices, the market doesn't grow, and hence commercial capital doesn't come in. Number one, unless you reduce the barriers of innovation, you know what you highlighted that we don't know what NCDs in bottom of the pyramid even look like. Like, how do we innovate? We're sort of innovating for a dark, unknown market in some sense. And that then means uh, ineffective solutions, not really knowing what is the challenge, etc. So we need that data, fertile data, and the environment for us to be able to do this effectively. And the third part of it is, uh, you know, as you said, the Bismarck model and uh, let's say the NHS model. NHS model requires high state capacity, uh, you know, which is not our strength. The Bismarck model for us, the challenge is we are such unorganized markets that the payee, payer and the employer's role often doesn't translate as it does in the developed market space. And hence, what is the right structure for us to do it? Uh, incidentally, I mean, you know, I was uh, pleasantly surprised when you highlighted it as well. For me, the models like clinic are the most uh, promising uh, aspects of what is coming in healthcare innovation as well, because if there is somebody who then takes full responsibility for your care, you know, rather than saying I am the provider, I am the payer, and I am the uh, one who is sort of giving you medical advice, etc., to say, hey, listen, this is a one-stop shop. Here are ways for us to integrate all of this. Their interest in actually getting large-scale data, their interest in actually standardizing, bringing down the cost of care so that they can deliver better value, is actually higher. And in my mind, if we are able to find the right pricing for it, it's probably the model that works well for India. You know, because we, I don't think, are currently capable of handling the fiscal burden of tertiary care when our primary systems are broken. As much as we should continue to invest in the state's capacity to deliver primary care, I feel like alternate models that can enable and promise care at scale, uh, you know, and combine that with the pricing uh, models on, I mean, the, the insurance models around that, I think is an innovation that India needs because that allows us, if it works well, distribution for a wide range of devices, distribution for a wide range of services that we can deliver to people at scale. Um, and it, for me, all the ingredients are starting to come in place. There's a lot of conversation on, uh, you know, insurance. I know there is a large conversation on ESIC as well to see how it can improve their access there is the ABDM, there is the entrepreneurial energy. Um, in this, and philanthropy is often seen as a catalytic uh, capital. You know, you sort of say that, okay, all the logs are in place, can we start the fire? Specifically, not just for from an Omidyar lens, but overall, when you see the philanthropic landscape and, you know, given the growing domestic philanthropic landscape as well, are there things that you think philanthropy can do to really just get the fire started here? Yeah, no, I think... Uh, uh, Absolutely, you hit the nail on the head. I think we've seen this in other sectors, right? Like if you look at the development sector uh, and if you take financial inclusion, you know, the biggest success story we still talk about is microfinance uh, was initially non-profit, philanthropy-driven. Education in India was philanthropy-driven for the longest period of time and uh, for a large part continues to be so. What is the equivalent of that in healthcare? I don't think we've ever clearly defined that. It used to be the early, old age hospitals, you know, used to come from non-profits, etc. But beyond that, we haven't really thought about the role of philanthropic capital in provision of healthcare beyond things like malaria and TB and eradication of uh, large uh, diseases, right? Uh, and there, I think the missing link is what I said, the same thing about commercial capital is the same for philanthropic. I don't think there has been enough focus on medtech innovations. I don't think uh, digital health, uh, even the telemedicine, you know, those could have been uh, funded. So telehealth has been around for 15, 17 years in India, very little uh, adoption, if you will. And I don't think there was a focus because 
people would gravitate like i said towards on field uh, what is uh, you know what is on the ground uh, not necessarily technology led solution the fundamental mind shift and you know i think we are starting to see that happen um, but uh, it's still drip so uh, I, if i were to flip on that switch to say hey let's focus on creating uh, you know in, innovative instrument which is really around uh, uh, facilitating you know diagnostics for the rural population or about facilitating cloud icus right like uh, can you have there's companies like cloud physician which are trying to do that uh, where you uh, there uh, the patient is in one part uh, there is a facilitator either nurse or you know paramedical uh, and then there is a hospital and a senior surgeon somewhere else and they're able to monitor identify what the issues are right we're going to have to move towards that what is the right solutions or experiments that we need to undertake at the field level using technology recognizing that healthcare is it is what it is right today uh, and what are those pilots uh, i don't honestly we are thinking about that is wip as far as we are concerned as you alluded to i think primary care is one area where it seems obvious uh, lots of you know learnings from the likes of watsalya nationwide uh, arvind eye care uh, as far as i is good. so different learnings that we have gained industry has also gained in terms of what works what doesn't now the question is can we convert that into a sustainable like you said clinic model could become the default for primary care uh, dwara model could become the default so we don't know but primary care seems like something philanthropic capital will navigate towards but i think equally important is these other piece that technology led solutions how do you, around access around devices around uh, getting people to like i mentioned earlier um, screen earlier so niramai for example right they so the screen for cancer much earlier uh, not in a stage 3 or stage 4 at a stage 1 and most likely at a stage 2 situation like so how do you get those innovations to reach that population and see which one works uh, that would have to be funded by philanthropic capital and then over time as we see success hopefully it sees the same evolution that these other sectors madri thanks so much you've been very generous with your time and your insights and for me it was a, a very very engaging conversation i think we really we're able to cover a wide range of topics and also recognize what are the knots you know some of these are more systemic issues as well uh, rather than just point solutions and there are never easy answers but i think uh, i am actually leaving this conversation feeling more positive that solutions are possible you know so thank you so much it's been a wonderful conversation and i'd love to sort of stay in touch to see if at some point we can do a part 2 where we come back and say okay hey the things have actually improved from the last time we spoke and here is what is happening yeah i think moving from the knots to haves right like what what works i really hope we make that transition uh, i don't have answers today as you would have figured out so hopefully we'll have that answer. thank you vatri thanks so much you have been listening to decoding impact to learn more about satva and satva knowledge institute please explore satva.co.in we invite you to like share and subscribe to decoding impact so you never miss out on new episodes thank you for joining us